0: So welcome back, everyone, to the Derm Club podcast. In a former podcast, we discussed the etiology of psoriasis with Dr. Stephen Feldman. Today, though, we're going to take a slightly different approach and spend more time understanding the treatment regimens that are used to treat psoriasis, which is a chronic immune-mediated skin disease that affects 2 to 3% of the world's population. The management of psoriasis has witnessed a tremendous change over the last decade. The common systemic medications used to treat psoriasis have commonly been methotrexate, retinoids, which are vitamin A, and cyclosporin. But now new methods have been paved with biologic agents that hold the promise to treat psoriasis in a novel way. To discuss the intricacies of these breakthroughs, We have Dr. Christopher Griffiths, who has who was instrumental in developing the concept that psoriasis is an immune-mediated disease, which has led to the development of targeted life-transforming biologic drugs for psoriasis treatment. Dr. Griffiths currently is the director of the Manchester Center for Dermatology Research and the head of the dermatology team of the National Institute for Health Research at Manchester Biomedical Research Center. He is the past president of the British, British Association of Dermatologists, European Dermatology Forum, British Society for Investigative Dermatology, and International Psoriasis Council. He is also very well published with over 600 cited articles and is editor-in-chief of Brooks Textbook of Dermatology. Dr. Christopher Griffiths, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Derm Club podcast.
1: Hello, Anna, no, nice, uh, nice to be invited. I'm looking forward to our discussion.
0: Great, so let's get started. What is the first line treatment for psoriasis?
1: Well, that's a very important question, Hannah. And you mentioned in your introduction that you know, psoriasis um, occurs across the world And in some countries it's commoner than others. And, um, but of course, in the Western world in the United States and in the United Kingdom where I am, the first first line treatment is gonna be different than it would be for patients with psoriasis say in in Sub-Saharan Africa. But in the United States and in Western Europe, most patients will be managed by their primary care practitioner to start with, uh, a general practitioner, GP. And usually, Uh, treatment is topical, and that's uh, ointments and and, uh, creams, which can be an emollient, which is just uh, Vaseline, something just to keep the skin moist, or a uh, topical uh, cream or ointment that contains a corticosteroid, anti-inflammatory, or increasingly a vitamin D, and uh, quite often a combination of the two.
0: So when do you know when to start treating patients with a biologic and where do you start?
1: Well, I mean, again, that varies across the world depending on the access to biologic therapies. But I think that what we should first talk about is that um, topical therapies are fine, you know, they work pretty well, but of course it has to be applied to the individual plaque or or lesion of psoriasis. And then if the disease is more extensive uh, then one should consider using uh, light treatment, you know, ultraviolet light treatment, um, uh, or um, other systemic therapies, which you mentioned at the beginning, such as methotrexate and cyclosporin and uh, retinoids, um, such as acetretin. Uh, and those are what we'd call the conventional, more old-style therapies, all of which are effective in some patients, but all of them have to be monitored carefully for risk of side effects. And uh, biologic therapies have been developed really over the past you know, uh, 30, 35 years as a consequence of identifying that psoriasis is a disease of the skin that is due to an imbalance of components of the immune system in the skin. So it's a, an immunological response as you described it, an immune mediated inflammatory disease. And biologics are injections for the most part. And they are targeting In which biologics use targeting different components of the immune system, uh, usually signaling chemicals called interleukins. I'm sure we'll discuss that further. And um, in the UK, where I practice, patients are only eligible for a biologic um, if they've tried and failed or been unsuitable for those traditional therapies such as methotrexate. And then they have to have had psoriasis for at least six months and. Certain severity and a certain impairment of the patient's quality of life, which can be immense, as you, I'm sure, I'm sure you're aware. And um, and the reason that it's limited in this sort of gatekeeper system is that biologics, for the most part, are expensive drugs. So on average in the UK, and it would cost over ten thousand pounds. That's about fifteen thousand dollars for the drug alone per year. Um, uh, But there are a lot of biologics available now. About eleven different biologic therapies and the difficulty is trying to understand which one would be best for which individual patient so it's not a it's not easy and it's not it's not at the moment a treatment that would be used as soon as the patient first turns up in the clinic there's often a, a process that has to be gone through and of course these as they target the immune system they have to be monitored closely.
0: So do you wish that you didn't have to use methotrexate and you could skip directly to using a biologic if the UK didn't have those rules?
1: Well, that's a fantastic question. And I think that the more we know about biologics and their safety, and I've had the privilege of running something called the British Association of Dermatologists, Biologics and Immunomodulators Register since 2007, which is a long-term... Um, database of patients um, with psoriasis who have been put onto biologic therapies to assess the safety of these drugs. And we've been running that in the UK, as I said, for 14 years now, and we have over 20,000 patients who are enrolled in this long-term study. And the good news is that the biologics, as long as the patients are selected and screened accordingly, uh, seem to be remarkably well-tolerated, and remarkably effective, and for the most part, um, pretty safe drugs. I'm Not saying one should be complacent. And they're certainly given the opportunity. And I think now with the cost coming down, the drugs called biosimilars, which are a cheaper way of producing these particular medicines, then it could well be that they could be used first line. That means before what I would call the traditional systemic therapies. Methotrexate, got is there is a very cheap drug, of course.
0: Well, that would be very exciting if the cost did come down because many more patients would have access to these excellent biologics and the drug advancements happening. Are there any, you know, you mentioned biosimilars. Could you explain to our audience what a biosimilar is?
1: Well, biosimilar is a biologic therapy, which are proteins. They're very complex, difficult drugs to make, and um, they are not... See so you might that your audience may have heard of um, what are called generic medicines, which are um, the same treatment but just made in a cheaper way. These are um, bias called biosimilar because they are not exactly one hundred percent the same as the original parent drug. Um, it's because of the complexity of making them. But when the patents run out on the original drug, the original biologics, then other companies can come in start to produce these biologics uh, in, a, in a cheaper way than they'd been done before so for instance in one of the biologics we use commonly in the UK which has been around for you know, 15 years close to it um, we now have biosimilars which was about a tenth of the price so that shows that you know the prices can come down they're still still not cheap it's still a thousand pounds fifteen hundred dollars a year but a lot cheaper than you know um, the original drug.
0: Have you seen any issues with treating psoriasis with biosimilars versus the brand name drug? Like, have Never. you noticed any more side effects or change in efficacy and safety with the biosimilars versus the brand name?
1: Um, we haven't, and it's because in in this biologics register we call bad pair. Uh, we are tracking patients on biosimilars as well as the originators because there was, there was concern early on that a patient swap between one maybe between the originator and the biosimilar, they may see a change in uh, risk, and they may see a change in, in, in efficacy. Uh, but to date, we haven't seen that, you know, which is good news. Now, of course, not all of the biologics have, have biosimilars as yet. There's only about three or four where there are biosimilars. And by the regulations, the the clinical trials do not need to be as detailed and as complete as they were with the originator drug. But uh, so the answer to your question is that is something that we've considered, but we're monitoring that very carefully. And to date, we don't see any um, disconcerting signals.
0: That's very exciting news. So, Mm. you know, this far we have FDA approval for biosimilars that that are TNF. Alpha inhibitors. Do you think it sounds like we are going to be seeing a lot more biosimilars beyond just CNF alpha inhibitors?
1: Uh, that, that's for sure, and it's really dependent on when the the, the patent um, run runs out on the originators. So I guess that the next one that where the patent will run out, and then there will be the opportunity for biosimilars, is one called ustekinumab, which is uh, or Stelara. And that is the targets, no, not genomicrosis t- t- factor alpha, TNF, but uh, two of these chemicals called interleukins, interleukin-12 and interleukin-23. And that's been with us for a while, very successful drug.
0: So I want to take you back a little just to the beginning. Um, is there a body surface area threshold that you have when you decide to treat a patient with a biologic?
1: Well, um, as I mentioned before, in the UK, there's this gatekeeper system. So the patient has to have a certain severity of psoriasis. And we don't use, we sort of use a version of the body surface area. <clears throat> we use something called PASI, PASI, which is psoriasis area severity index, which is a, a composite of the main clinical features of psoriasis, which is erythema or redness, um, uh, the thickness of the plaque and the scaling of the plaque, and then assessing the uh, surface area of various body regions, such as the, the arms or the legs or the trunk or the face. And then you can then get a score from zero, which is no psoriasis at all, to 72, which will be the world's worst. In fact, we just don't see that level. But any score of above 10 would be classed as you know, severe, clinically severe psoriasis. So they have to have a of 10 or more.
0: Do you find that you are choosing medication based on their PASI score percentage? You know, it used to be that PASI scores were only about 70, lower than 70%. Now I know the goal is to have them be 90 to 100% of clearance.
1: Yeah, so what you are referring to is the way that assessment is, um, well, that response to therapy is assessed is through the, um, improvement in the in that parsi score from baseline so it's how much percentage improvement has been so a parsi 75 would be a 75% reduction in the um severity of psoriasis so a parsi may start out at you know um uh 40 and go down to um you know uh if it goes down to uh, 75% of that then, that, then that would be a, a PARSI-75. Uh, we have done that over the years, but now we've got such powerful biologic therapies that it is much more um, likely that a patient can achieve what's called a PARSI-90. So that's a 90% improvement. And I remember back in 2005, I was debating with another uh, eminent dermatologist from Germany at the European Academy of Dermatology Meeting in London, and we were then debating as to whether we should be moving from a PARSI fifty as an outcome. That's a fifty percent improvement. As a sort of rather scary seventy-five percent improvement, you know, would we be able to achieve that? Well, now, as yeah, we've gone through that world world record, and we're now the PASI ninety, and some patients on these new biologics can get parsi one hundred, which is a complete clearance. That's about forty percent. So, you know, incrementally, we're making huge progress.
0: That's remarkable. So, um, do you find that, you know, I understand that in the UK, you start with methotrexate, if they fail it, then they're allowed to go on and try a biologic. Do you continue to use adjunct therapy when starting a biologic with either methotrexate, topicals, or even phototherapy?
1: We try, well, we tend not to. There are some patients who are being transitioned from, say, methotrexate to a biologic, there may be a short period of time when they're on both because it's not a good idea just to... You know. The methotrexate may not be working that well, but it's still helping. So we don't want to stop that and then the disease flare up. Um, so we'll often sort of have an overlap for a short period of time. Um, but most patients in my care um, would rather just be on a monotherapy. That means a one, one drug, which will be a biologic, um, which doesn't produce the subjective you know, personal sort of f- personally felt side effects that methotrexate does or, or require the detailed monitoring. And also interestingly, and you know, we talked about topical therapies and um, sorry about that, uh, topical therapies, uh, a lot of patients just don't want to use them because, you know, I don't, I'm sure that, you know, we've all used creams or ointments for something over the time. And it's very difficult to um, ad- adhere to treatment protocols you know, to use something twice a day is actually quite a quite a deal to do that. And people don't like doing it. So they'd rather so, just, just be on the biologic.
0: Which is interesting because I understand, you know, it's almost a nuisance to have to apply a topical twice a day. But there's also a, a tremendous commitment and also possibly an anxiety associated with doing a injection for the biologic. Have you found that you have patients who are not compliant because of needing to inject the biologic?
1: Well, when we first started out on this, with with biologics, which of course are all uh, injected, um, subcutaneous injection, usually in the UK delivered by the patient themselves, we thought in a rather paternalistic way that they wouldn't be able to do it and they wouldn't like to do it. In fact, that's nonsense because think of the millions of people around the world who self-inject insulin. And of course, it's no, it's no big deal. I mean, I have very, very few patients indeed who won't do the inject, who don't want to do the injections. If they don't want to do them, then there's nursing, then nurses who would, who would be happy to do that for them, or other family members. And um, I have not come across, or rarely come across, a patient who has not responded because they haven't used the treatment properly or haven't wanted to. Um, what we do see, though, interestingly, in the studies we've done, that uh, about 15 percent, 20 percent of patients uh, don't adhere to, to the regimen that we prescribe. And that's because patients um, will often, if they're doing very well on a biologic, will experiment a little bit. And rather than using the injection every two weeks, they may want to use it every three or four weeks. So, you know, see, see what they can get away with. But overall, the uh, adherence to treatment, compliance in old language is actually very, very good, but still not still not perfect, but it's still very good. And, so I'm sure you, that, and I'm sure that you and myself and anyone listening to this would have not taken a full course of antibiotics. We're just not very good at, at doing that sort of thing.
0: <laughs> That's true. How do you go about educating the patient? Um, on how to inject themselves. You know, I once went to a lecture with Dr. Steven Feldman, and he said he used to have patients come to his office and he would hand them an orange and he would have them practice on the orange, injecting on the orange. So I'm just curious, not everyone's used to, you know, when I watch someone inject insulin, for me, yes, I'm used to giving um, injections. So it's not so unusual, but I can imagine that it's, it's a little bit of a like a shock in the beginning. Um, do you have a way of educating patients that seems to work well?
1: Well, you know, Hannah, the very best people to educate our patients are our are excellent nurses. So our nurses are really the educators, and they're the ones who take the patient through the whole process. So if the patient's eligible, part of that process is, by, is about um, having an education session with the nurse as to how to do it. But the nurses will show them how to do it they may deliver the first few themselves, uh, but the nurse would do, and then they hand over to the patient and go from there. So yeah, we don't just say, here's the syringe, here's here's what you do, Um, good luck. You know, come back and see us in a few weeks. (laughs) And actually take them through very carefully, you know? But uh, it's a very straightforward process now. Quite often, as you know, these uh, injection, um, these uh, injectors, they don't actually see the needle. It's like it doesn't look a little sort of punch, really. And it's usually done on the top of the thigh or on the, on the stomach in just into the skin in, and into the tissue immediately beneath the skin. So it's not very deep injection at all.
0: What are some of your ongoing challenges and limitations of the current biologics that are FDA approved for the use in patients that you notice or have seen?
1: Well, I guess the main ongoing, the main challenge is um, that not all these drugs work for everybody, and not all of them work long time. We, we, we don't have a cure yet for psoriasis, although we've made such fabulous progress, we don't have a cure. Um, but it's, it, the challenge is to find the right drug for the right patient. You know, we're all different. This is something we call personalized medicine or stratified medicine. And that's because with time, quite a lot of patients will develop antibodies. That means the body responds, reacts to the, the drug to the level where the levels of the drug, the biologic in the, in the bloodstream start to drop and it's no longer effective. And we see that quite commonly. And once that ha- starts to happen, there may be a need for the patient to switch to another biologic therapy. And of course, nowadays we're in the great position of being able, having a lot of choice, but, you know, so we can switch. So that is still, you know, we want to be able to identify early on which patients are going to where that might develop and how we may be able to prevent that happening.
0: But are there, overall,
1: the, the treatments are, you know, very very straightforward, and I think it's a matter of finding the right drug, the right biologic for the right patient, and monitoring for side effects. You've always got to do that, but also hopefully you'll get them on the right medicine so they don't develop those antibodies, and they can be on the, that same drug for a long period of time without switching.
0: So, how often do you find that you have a patient? You know, everything's going really well with the biologic. They're on it for about anywhere from three to six months. At six months, they start their psoriasis starts to flare again. Do you start to reevaluate and then switch them to a new drug? Like how often is that happening in your clinic?
1: It doesn't happen that often, I mean, it depends. You know, there's lots of things at play here. Some medicines are a little bit more likely to, to, to have this happen than others. Um, some patients, particularly if they're overweight, uh, that can be more likely to happen where they, the the blood levels start to drop, and there is a case to be made. Because as you were aware, Anna, the um, you know what currently is a sort of one one dose fits all at the moment for most biologics. One or two of them, there's a little bit of latitude. You can increase the dose if the patient weighs more than 100 kilograms. I think there's more opportunity to have a more of a personalised dosing regimen. So, you know, um, so say if you had a drug such as uh, one of the anti-TNFs you mentioned called Adalimumab, the standard regimen is an injection every two weeks. Most people would do okay with that, but there may be some patients who would need the injection every week. And then there may be a smaller number who could get away with the injection every four weeks. So it's a matter of finding the right dosing regimen for, the, for individual patients.
0: Do you ever find yourself encouraging patients to, you know, practice some lifestyle modifications yeah. like eating and exercise to maintain a lower weight?
1: Yeah, so we've been a real um, pioneer of this in Manchester. So it's something, so yeah, I mean, you can, you can get patients on, you know, with a great um, understanding we have of Um, the immunology of psoriasis and development of biologic therapies and the great responses we have from those drugs. The other crucial part of management of patients with psoriasis is education about what psoriasis is and what it isn't and what to expect from treatment. You've got to manage expectations, but also what the patient can do for themselves to improve the psoriasis. And that's a behavior change or lifestyle management. And uh, we know that losing weight, um, stopping smoking, reducing or maybe stopping alcohol consumption, um, exercise, better diet, all of these things on their own will help psoriasis. And combined with the right medicine is a very powerful combination. So we run something in Manchester, we developed something called um, So Well Program, P S O W E W L, which is Psoriasis Wellbeing. Where using motivational interviewing, patients can learn very rapidly how how to lose weight or how to stop smoking, and it's you know it's easy for me to say okay um, Mrs Smith you've got to lose weight, that's not going to go down very well because most people don't want to listen to that. So the way to do it is um, if Mrs Smith does does need to lose weight, you know, I'd say to her, well we're going you know we can get you on this great treatment for your psoriasis, but you are a little bit overweight. Um, how much would you like to lose weight on a score from zero to 10 where zero is forget it I'm not at all interested to 10 I really want to do this and they may say well perhaps um four and I'll counter that by saying well what um why isn't it less than that you know why aren't you saying not at all and they'll say well I've heard that losing weight may reduce my chance of getting diabetes it might be make me less likely to get arthritis I can you know uh it's gonna be better for me, the medicines might work better. So immediately you're putting the sort of the the onus or the um imperative on in and in the hands of the patients and they're then driving it and saying, okay, it's me who wants to lose weight. It's not Professor Griffiths who's telling me to lose weight. I'm doing it for myself.
0: Very interesting and it seems like it works. And I I, you know, I would hope that we implement the same techniques here in the US. Um, I have a few more questions. So are you concerned, you know, we talked about the few patients that after a little while, they start to develop antibodies, you know, at what point do you like run out of options? Yeah, it's wonderful that we have all these biologics at this point in time, but isn't there like some long-term concern that eventually these patients are just are gonna start failing treatment
1: and then what do we do? Yeah, well, that's something that does concern us. And you know, we have a you know great treatments at the moment. I think there's several things that can be done. We've touched on them at the moment. One is this patient education. That's very important. So lifestyle and therefore being proactive about all that is very important. The other is to see patients much earlier in the, in the disease course than we currently do. Because as has been shown with other so-called immune-mediated immune mediated inflammatory diseases, such as Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, arthritis as well, the earlier the patient is seen after the disease first starts to present or is diagnosed, the more chance one has of, getting, of modifying the disease progress. And so what we've set up in Manchester is something called the psoriasis rapid access clinic. So when a patient is first diagnosed with psoriasis by their GP, by their primary care physician, uh, they will be referred straight to us. And therefore then we can get, you know, get them onto the right treatment, get them to screen them for um, risk factors for other diseases that we've not talked about as yet. So lifestyle management, early, early treatment, early diagnosis, getting them on the right medicine using and nowadays and I think we are developing this stratified medicine approach where information we have on an individual from a blood test to what sort of psoriasis they have to maybe a skin biopsy all that information going in, into an algorithm a sort of a, a formula if you like will allow us to predict which will be the best medicine for that particular patient so it's more like going to a you know a clothes store rather than just buying off the peg suit I would go to a tailor in several Row in London and get a bespoke suit, which would be perfect, made specifically for me and my, my uh, body. Um, but the other thing is of course, you know, should we be trying to look for a cure? And I think that may be a way off, uh, but there may be some other approaches that might actually help psoriasis. They're not necessarily pharmacological approaches, but maybe using what are called cell, cell therapies or mesenchymal stem cell therapies. So not bone marrow transplant, but bone marrow transplant has been shown to work in psoriasis. And there were some studies, uh, case reports from patients back in the 1980s and 1990s who had received a bone marrow transplant because they had leukemia. They just happened to have psoriasis at the same time, and their psoriasis cleared and stayed away. So there is an intense interest, and we are involved with that. So so look at other non-pharmacological approaches. So it's, it's not going to be straightforward. I think but treating early may actually make the disease much more, much more manageable.
0: But of so course, the, you... other thing,
1: the other thing we've not talked about, of course, it states, and I'm sure we'll have another podcast about this, is these patients with psoriasis carry risk factors for other diseases, such as diabetes, arthritis, depression, and, and heart disease. And so it's important to think about managing the whole patient not just the skin. It's, you know, do they have heart disease? Do they have high cholesterol? Should we be screening for that and managing that as well? That's I think what a good dermatologist or physician should be doing nowadays is managing all the aspects of psoriasis and the associated diseases.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you really have to do like very integrative, wholesome care. You can't just look at the, you know, skin lesion. You have, have it's a whole systemic picture. I've met patients with psoriasis who couldn't even leave their house because they had such social anxiety. So even being able to approach that situation can improve the person's life and, you know, improve their their outcome with psoriasis as well. Um, are you working on any research at the moment?
1: Yeah, we have a huge research program here in Manchester. I think over the years, we've pretty much done everything there is. So we on psoriasis but we have you know we've led on all sorts of stuff everything from doing brain scan on people with psoriasis to look at how they you know the the um we know that some people with depression and psoriasis it's not because they are necessarily feeling upset about the way that the psoriasis looks and how it's affected their lives some patients they have a, an inflammation in the brain as well as in the skin um but yeah if it's somebody, if it's psoriasis we're interested um, I currently lead a, a global a global initiative called the Global Psoriasis Atlas, where we're looking at the epidemiology, the, how, how common psoriasis is around the world. And you mentioned at the beginning that it affects 2% of the population. That's true in some countries, maybe the United States, Europe, UK, some countries in Europe. But there are other countries in the world where it's far less than that. Um, so it's very variable across the world depending on uh, genetics particularly so but it's a very common disease it's one of the commonest inflammatory diseases in the world and so it affects people in every country of the world
0: do you do you foresee using gene therapy maybe even something like crispr to treat psoriasis well, I
1: mean I think that might be uh, the problem with crispr I guess would be we would have to know what the genetic um um, fault was. And I, I think psoriasis is a complex disease. So it's not like treating some diseases where there's a single gene mutation, where it'd be easier, easier, not easy, but easier to correct mm-hmm. it. Psoriasis is just not like that. Is There are some genes which track with psoriasis, but if you have that gene, it doesn't mean you're definitely going to get psoriasis. You have to have that gene plus some other genes and maybe an environmental trigger. But that's why I think that the gene, th- gene therapy probably wh- made... I predict probably won't do it, but cell therapy may well be helpful. So we, so start, to, we just start thinking about different ways of managing these people.
0: It sounds, you know, you mentioned that not every country has 2% population affected. Do you believe that's because of the epigenetics in that area?
1: I think it's due to their genetics in part. I think, you know, we know that's in the the, the the key gene that drives or is... is cut, is commonest in patients with early onset psoriasis in, in Western Europe and the United States, something called HLA CW6, is not the same, is not associated with psoriasis that we see in China, for instance. But in China, the disease is not, is not as common in the sense that it's only probably less than 1% of the population, but of course, it's a very large population. So there are a lot of people with psoriasis who live in China. Uh, but that means that maybe the approaches to management of these patients is going to be slightly different. So they may not respond quite so well to the biologics that we're using in patients that we see maybe in the United States or the UK. Can
0: you use biologics in pregnancy?
1: Yes, you can use biologics in pregnancy. When we first started, we were very unsure about that. But our view in Manchester, I think that's shared now by most dermatologists, well, probably all of them, as in in pregnancy, they are okay to use for the first two trimesters out of the the pregnancies in three trimesters. So the first two thirds of pregnancy, they're okay. Um, The reason that we are hesitant to use them throughout the whole pregnancy is that later in the latter stages of pregnancy, these biologics may cross the placental barrier into into the baby. Not that they would harm the baby, but they make the baby a little maybe at risk of infection if they're going to have an inoc- a vaccination or whatever. Uh, there is one biologic that can be used throughout pregnancy because it doesn't cross the placental barrier. But what surprised us is that, the side, that, they, that they do not seem to produce um, any significant problems in pregnancy, which is very reassuring because you know, a lot of these other drugs we mentioned, apart from cyclosporin, one cannot use them in pregnancy. And um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the encouraging things that's come out of the, out of the registries that, you know, we are, we are pretty comfortable with, with women who to use them because although psoriasis often improves during pregnancy, you can't always predict that. And um, it's best if, you, if the psoriasis is under control and there's no major contraindication to continue then to continue with the biologic, at least for the first um 30 weeks something like that 20 no, 26 weeks or so
0: and i'm sure that's very reassuring to many patients because they will feel less frustrated also knowing that if they can use it in pregnancy it's very safe so
1: it's yeah, i wouldn't say very I, I, yeah i'm always cautious about saying very safe but we have not seeing any signals that would make us at all that would make us concerned that's that, that's for sure which is which is good
0: before we wrap up, I would like to know what your thoughts are on using JAK inhibitors like tofacitinib, also known as Gelzans um, to treat psoriasis. You know, at this time Gelzans is being used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis and ulcerative colitis. Um, do you foresee that it will soon be used and approved to be used for psoriasis? And what are your th- thoughts on JAK inhibitors? There's a lot of research going on around this area.
1: Well, there's a lot of work on these JAK inhibitors and carotene um, uh, kinase inhibitors as well, which are small molecules. They're not biologics, they're given as um, tablets. So they're orally delivered medicines, and not injections. And um, so these are immunomodulators. So they modify other aspects of the immune system, maybe in a more a broader way than the targeted, by, targeted interleukin inhibitors, the biologics we've talked about. Um, there, there was a lot of work on tofacitinib um, a few years ago, trials, many trials in psoriasis. It is, it is effective, but it, it would not be, it's not going to be taken forward for psoriasis because it, doesn't, um, it does not work as well as the biologics. And there are a number of um, safety concerns so the risk benefit ratio is not ideal when you've got other options which are better but there are other more specific jack kinase inhibitors coming through which of course as you well know are being developed for atopic dermatitis and then there are uh, tyrosine kinase inhi- inhibition which is a, a similar sort of approach which looks promising for psoriasis so this would be an oral medication a pill taken twice a day rather than an injection Every two weeks or every twelve weeks.
0: And do you foresee your your using this with on your patients in the future?
1: I think it's it's good to have that as as a an addition to our armamentarium. Um, I think that they would have to be as easy to use, as safe and as effective as the biologics. I mean, the biologics you know, have they've, they've got a very good record, as we've discussed. So. It will take quite a bit to shift them from the top spot. But there, there'll be some patients who, who don't want to have injections. You know, we've discussed that. So right. it's, it's always good to have that option there. The, well, the, the other thing is that these, some of these, Jack, just before we close, we talked at the very beginning about you know topical treatments. Well, these Jack kinase inhibitors can be made into formulations that can be used topically. So you can foresee that some of these may be used topically.
0: Well, Professor Griffiths, thank you very much for educating me and the public. You have a bounty of knowledge about psoriasis. You taught me a lot about biologics and treatments, and I'm excited to see what research you continue to come out with. Thank you very much for your time.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me.
0: Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Derm Club Podcast. If you found the discussion today to be valuable, please subscribe and share. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode as we continue to delve into dermatology and skincare with the world experts.